0: I feel humbled by such a presentation, especially coming from my very good friend Samuel Clintock. Um, we could probably spend the whole morning here just talking about the uh, memories and the adventures that uh, Samuel and I had along with the boys, as we call them back in Cleveland, uh, about the way God used us uh, in the 90s and then the early 2000s, about doing all kinds of short-term missions to Romania and uh, doing a lot of evangelistic work. Uh, But I believe that our God is not a God of the past. I believe that our God is a God of the future. Uh, Thank you so very much for receiving us in your midst. Uh, It's an honor and a privilege to be here. We bring you greetings from uh, Emmanuel University of Aradia. We thank you for everything that you are doing, uh, and we're here for the specific purpose, uh, to ask you to continue to minister alongside us. I wanna extend an invitation to you uh, to bring as many of your church members as you can on a short term mission to Romania. Uh, I know we almost had one planned for this year. Uh, also, if you would allow your pastor to spend a week in Romania teaching, uh, as you very well know, he's a gifted teacher uh, and our theology school could really use somebody uh, with his expertise and with his knowledge, uh, just infusing uh, that theological knowledge into our students. Uh, thank you so much for the fact that uh, you've allowed us to come and share a few words at the Lord's Supper. Um, Very often, we as Christians kind of take it for granted. We look at it as just another routine thing that has to happen. And uh, oh, yes, it's the first week of the month. It must be the Lord's Supper. Uh, But I would like us this morning to go a little bit deeper into the meaning of the Lord's Supper. Uh, And I would like us to internalize it. I would like this Lord's Supper to really change our hearts, to transform our hearts. So please allow me to read a few words from the Scripture. Uh, from Matthew chapter 18, and I'm going to be reading from verse 21 on to verse tw- 35. Matthew chapter 18, I'll be reading from verse 21 to verse 35. Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to seventy times seven. For this reason the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he began to settle them, one who owed them ten thousand talents was brought to him. But since he did not have the means to repay, the Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had and repayment to be made. So the slave fell on the ground and prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. And the lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. But then the slave went out and found a fellow slave who owed him a hundred denarii. And he seized him and began to choke him, saying, Pay back that which you owe. So his fellow slave sat, fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you. But he was so unwilling and went through him in prison until he could repay everything that he owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to the Lord all that had happened. Then, summoning him, his Lord said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me. Should you have not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And this Lord moved with anger, handed him over the tortures until he should repay all that was owed. My heavenly Father would also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from his heart. Amen. Let's bow our heads and pray. Lord God, we come before you and we want to thank you for this opportunity that we have to partake in uh, your supper. Lord, we ask that uh, you touch our hearts and you give us a spirit of forgiveness, that you give us a spirit of repentance. And we thank you for everything in Jesus' name. Amen. So, what do we celebrate at the Lord's Supper? If you read the scripture in Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul talks about the two fundamental things that we celebrate at the Lord's Supper. The very first thing that we celebrate once a month is our repentance. Now, whenever you talk about the word repentance, that's a very tricky word, and especially in the English language, we kind of lost track of it. Uh, Most of us are familiar with the word repentance as an altar call. And I'm sure that probably in your church or in other churches that you've been, you have seen the altar calls. So whenever somebody talks about repentance, we always talk about the people who are out there. We're talking about the drug addicts. We're talking about those individuals who really have messed up their lives. Uh, individuals who would never darken the the door of a church, uh, those people really need repentance. And I'm sure that you've had prayers for those individuals. And please don't get me wrong, they do need repentance. However, if you study the scriptures, every single time that the Lord talks about, the Bible talks about repentance, it is typically directed to the children of God. In the Old Testament, the calling to repentance was always to the children of Israel, to the people who knew better. To the people of the book, to the people who received the covenant, they were always called to come back to repent. Now, the first time that we see repentance in the, first, in the New Testament is the, at the very beginning in Matthew chapter 3. And in Matthew chapter 3, John comes in and he talks about repentance and he says, I am here to bring you the good news. Our Lord Jesus Christ continued with the same message and he talked about repentance of the repented ones. Now, in Romania, the country where we come from, we are known as that comes from the Russian word which means repented ones. So in Romania, when you look at somebody, you say, are you a Christian? You basically are asking, are you repented? Now, in Romania in the early 1970s, the Christian churches was pretty much asleep. In the whole nation in the 1970s, there were less than 100 evangelical pastors. The communist regime was so oppressive. And in the early 1970s, there was a pastor who came in and he preached this message, the message of the repentance of the repented ones. Transformation of those people who claim to be Christians. Brothers and sisters, the message of the Lord in the Bible about repentance is not necessarily to the people outside of the church, but it's to the people inside of the church. It is the people who are inside of the church. It is the people who know the law that need repentance. Now, very often when we talk about repentance, we talk about it as a negative thing. Uh, And unfortunately, in our past and in our history, and I'm sure all of you have heard preachers talking repentance as as some sort of an evil thing. Uh, Unless you repent, you're going to burn in hell. Uh, Unless you uh, you repent, something evil is going to happen to you. But I want to tell you that the scripture does not talk about repentance as an evil thing. Quite the opposite. Repentance is a very positive thing. Repentance has to do with transformation. Has to do with deliverance. What do we need to repent from? First and most of all, we need to repent from ourselves. I don't know how people are in Austin, Texas, but in Romania, we are sinful people. And I'm not talking about outside of the church. I'm talking inside of the church. I'm talking us when we look in our own hearts and I think the most adequate statement of us is we have seen the enemy and it is us. We've looked in the mirror and that's who the problem is. The heart of the problem is the human heart. So we need to repent ourselves. Yes, the people outside of us need repentance and we do need to call them to repent. But first and most of all, it begins with us. If you have time at home please read Matthew chapter 3 because it is very explicitly spelled out how to repent why to repent and what repentance is all about repentance is a positive thing it's something that li- delivers us from us from our own sinful nature second of all repentance is a complete measurement uh, for some unknown reason, uh, today's Christians believe in this progressional repentance. Uh, and uh, uh, earlier today there was mention of this, the fact that we've kind of renamed sin in our society. It's no longer sin. It's, it's shortcomings. Uh, they're weaknesses. Uh, we're having issues. Uh, we're having uh, addictions. No, no, it's sin. And unfortunately, most of us are extremely tolerant with our own weaknesses, with our own sin. And we're justifying it, and we're saying, "Well, you know what? Uh, it's it's yeah, I, I I do need to work on that, and you know, if somebody can give me a six-step program to work on it, uh, I'm gonna give it the next twelve months, and I'm gonna go ahead and repent over the next two years." Uh, I don't see that in the scripture. Every time that you see repentance in the scripture, repentance was a definite thing, was a complete thing, was something that took place almost instantly. Now, it doesn't ha- doesn't mean that you never fell into sin again. But sin was an accident, was not a deliberate decision. Sin was never a result of you being indulgent with yourself, with you being understanding with yourself. Sin was something that you always looked at and you hated it. And Christians ought to say along with Paul, Oh, wretched man, that is me. Who's going to deliver me from this evil person that I am? We ought to say along with Paul, I buffet myself. I fight against myself every single day because I do not want after I preach to others, I myself to be cast away. The saddest thing that can be said about somebody singing at a church on a Sunday morning is that they're going to end up in their eternity in hell because they were in church, but they gave themselves all sorts of circumstantial evidences. Repentance is a positive thing. It's something that delivers us from ourselves. And it is not a result of us talking. You know, in John's time, there were the Pharisees who came to him and said, you know, we want to be baptized too. Can we do, can we respond to your altar call? We're going to come to you. And John looked at them and said, you brood of vipers. How would you like it if your pastor called the visitors that way? You brood of vipers. I know what you're all about. You're about appearances. You want to check that box and say, yep, I'm a member of that little church. Yes, I went there, and yes, I walked on the altar. No, 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 John said, let me tell you where the proof is. The proof is in your living. Are you transformed? Do you have the deeds? You know, we live in the continent of Europe, and most of you know that Europe is kind of like the cradle of Christianity. The Protestant Reformation, the Catholic Church, they're all there. Everybody in Europe is a Christian. If you go to the typical Romanian person and you ask them, you know, are you a Christian? They'll look at you very, very insulted and say, boy, we've been Christians for 2,000 years. We've been Christians since the beginning of time. The problem is that they're nominal Christians. The problem is that they were baptized and, you know, the, the, the uh, traditional churches kind of solved the baptism problem. You know, they just baptize them while they're very young, so they don't have a say in the matter. And that's what they do. Do you realize that today the Christian continent of Europe is the most heathen continent on the face of the planet? Do you realize that this morning in Europe, less than 5% of the population will be inside of a church? And keep in mind, folks, this is 500 million people. Less than 5% of them will go in a church. And you ask yourself, what happened? How did we get here? Well, I'll tell you, very simple. In the 1920s, in all the theological seminaries of Europe, uh, these scholars came and they started putting a question mark next to the scripture. And they started to say, well, we're not very sure. We're not very sure. You know, we had some archaeological uh, discoveries and maybe the scripture is not as reliable as we once thought. So, you know, we don't need to take things very seriously. We don't need things as literal as they are. You know, what? Le- le- you know, this issue of sin, you know, that's very insultive you know, when you tell people that they're sinners, when you tell people the truth, you know, they just want feel-good religion, just took some good programs. And they started doing that in the 1920s in Europe, and slowly and surely, by the 1950s, by the 1960s, the churches started to be empty. Because people said, if we don't believe in anything, why bother going to church? If the scripture does not have all the answers for our lives and for our problems, why do we even need to go in there? And Europeans got very smart. They saw the churches that got empty, and they said, boy, we have a serious problem. We're going to solve this the European way. We're going to go to the government, and we're going to petition the government to take over the churches. And every single European uh, uh, nation, including Romania, by the way, has what they call a minister of cultural affairs. And all the churches are under the jurisdiction of the cultural affairs. So really, the paycheck of the pastors and the priests in Europe is paid for by the government. They have a building fund or they need to refurbish their church, they'll just go to the government and the government allots so much money to them. And this is nice because you don't need to be worried if the church is full or not. You don't need to be worried about preaching any kind of doctrines because really the church is nothing more, nothing less than just a cultural artifact. And those of you who've traveled to Europe, you know what I'm talking about. One of the saddest experiences of my personal life was in the year 1999 when I had a, a, a travel, a business uh, travel to, to Europe, uh, and I was going to spend a Sunday in Paris. Now, it just so happened to be Easter Sunday. Now, I'm a huge hi- b- a fan of history, uh, and I said, okay, I'm going to go there, and I'm going to go to Notre Dame. I did a little research on it, and the Cardinal of France was going to do Mass. Now, Samuel doesn't know this. I, I, I went to the church. I know it's, it's not exactly kosher, but I said, you know, I, I was just going to do it in the, uh, in the afternoon. I went to the, the Romanian Baptist church. And uh, so it, it was okay. I, I solved everything. I, I don't want this stuff getting back home because then I'll get in trouble. So here I am, excited as all can be, okay? Early Sunday morning. I'm talking Resurrection Sunday, and I'm going to Notre Dame. I'm going to the most historical church in all of France. And to my amazement, it was packed. I said, "Great. At least on Easter people go to church. Right? At least on Easter I mean, this is a huge church, it seats thousands, thousands of people, and there were thousands thousands of people there. I just realized that those people were really not in a churchy mood. All of them had all kinds of accessories such as cameras and all kinds of video things. And I said, "Well wait, wait a minute. What's going on here?" So as I'm making my way through it, I realized what was going on the church was packed with tourists. And in, this, in the middle of the church, there was like a little fence, and there was the Cardinal of, uh, of, of France with about two or 300 believers doing his mass. And everybody else was taking pictures of them like they were at a zoo. That's the picture of Europe that does not repent. That's what happens when people do not transform their lives. That's what happens when there's no difference between the Christians and the outside world. That's what happens when we're trying to be so relevant, we're trying to look so much like the world where people look at us and say, what's the difference? At the Lord's suppers, the very first thing that we celebrate is repentance. Our Lord and Savior is calling us to be holy as He is holy. Set apart. We are a nationhood. We are a priesthood. That is separated. Now, so far, so good. I would assume that if you're good Baptist believers, you all agree with me so far. You say, yep, preach it, brother. Uh, Our our trouble comes from the second part. The second part is the forgiveness part. That's a difficult one. Because in theory, we would all like to repent. In theory, you all say, yeah, we're Christians and good thing that we heard it. Yeah, we're going to need to uh, dust off some of that sin in our life. But in practice, we're going to have to forgive some people that don't really deserve our forgiveness. I'm amazed when I read the gospel accounts. Uh, Jesus Christ is out there doing his ministry, preaching, telling about the good news, and he's pouring his heart out. He's weeping for the nations. He's weeping for all these lost individuals. What's the disciples' main concern? Again and again and again, when you hear the disciples talking, they're always concerned about who's first. Lord, you know, when you're going to do the new government, how are you going to split things up? Who's going to be prime minister? Who's going to be the head of this department? Who's going to be the head of that department? And if you read the context of the passage that we read this morning in Matthew chapter 18, you see the disciples are, are at it again. The disciples are once again concerned, and typically Peter, I mean, he was really rooting for a prime minister job. I mean, he wanted to be the secretary of all. So here he's interested about this, and he's talking about it, and Jesus is teaching them that if you want to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, you need to be like the least. It's so gl- it was so great to see the kids. The teaching of Jesus was that if you want to be the greater in the kingdom of heaven, you need to be like one of those children. You need to have an innocent heart. You need to be a servant of others. You need to be concerned about what other people need, not what you need. And then Peter comes in, as typically with Peter putting his foot in his mouth, he's saying, all right, Jesus, all right, can you give us some rules here? Can you give us some rules regarding how often should we forgive those people who have sinned against us, who have wronged us? Is seven times enough? And Jesus teaches us here one of the most awesome And one of the most difficult lessons of all Christianity, and that is there's no limit on forgiveness. There's no limit on forgiveness. Do you know what's the number one stumbling block in our repentance? The number one stumbling block in our repentance is the relationship that we have with those around us, typically those closest to us. Because every single one of us are sitting here and we're thinking about people who have wronged us. People who have done something wrong to us. And we're sitting there and we are right and we know we're right and we're getting our little friends around us to tell us that they're right and that that, that people did not repent and that that person did not apologize and we go on and on and on and we bitter that, uh, that, that, that anger. And it is that anger, that lack of forgiveness, that keep us from truly repenting. Now I wish I could tell you that I'm preaching here uh, out of books that I read, but this is a very personal story to me. Uh, Samuel already told you that I was born and raised in Romania. Uh, There were a few parts that he missed out. But when we came to America, we came to our father. Our father ran away from Romania in 1986, and then we came and we were reunited with him in 1989. We came in April of 1989, August 1st, 1989, he left us. So it was my mother and two brothers. My mother was 48, I was 12, my older brother was 15, and my younger brother was nine. We were in the inner city of Cleveland. We did not have beds to sleep on. We were just sitting on the, on the floors for the first couple of weeks. That's how we came to America. Even while we were children, our father was an alcoholic and he did all kinds of evil things and he did all kinds of bad things. Uh, Later on, my parents tried to do some kind of reconciliation. That never happened. Uh, He took some money from us. And in my heart as a child, I grew bitter and I grew angry. And I said to myself, until that man uh, repents, I will never forgive him. And I grew older and I got involved in ministry. And I got involved with the Romanian Baptist Youth Association. I was involved with countryside. I was running all over, all over the place. But in my heart, I never forgave my father. In 2003, I met my wife. And we started courting. And then a year later, we were engaged. And right before our wedding, she came to me and did one of the most courageous things that anybody's ever done to me. said, Sebastian, I will not marry you unless you go work things out with your father. Boy, she, she might as well hit me with a wi- with a brick in my head. I said, I can't. I said Sebastian, "Trust me, unless you do this, you're never going to be truly free. You're never going to be able to truly be repented. Never going to be able to truly be liberated." And she was right. She was right. Before our marriage, before our wedding, I went before him and trust me, I did not feel a thing. He never repented. He never asked for forgiveness. I went to him and I said, Dad. I forgive you. I forgive you for all those things that you did. I forgive you for, th- and I, uh, I listed all those things, uh, and, and I let it there. He never repented. Six months later, he passed away. Six months later, he passed away, and I truly believe that if I wouldn't have done that, I would still have, have that burn today. I could not be doing the things that I'm doing today. Brothers and sisters, it's very difficult to forgive very difficult to forgive. The parable that Jesus gives us here, there is that somebody who owes a lot. That somebody was you and I. We always look at how much other people have wronged us. Very seldom do we look at how much we've wronged God. Very seldom do we think about how much did we owe God and how much did he forgive us in comparison to what our brothers and sisters, those around us, are owing us. When you read this passage, you get so angry at the first servant. I mean, look at this guy. I mean, he was forgiven all that debt. I mean, that, that's something that Americans sure know something about. Okay. So, so he was forgiven all that debt. And when he came to him for giving a small little portion of debt to his fellow slave, he refused to. He said no. He said, no. Jesus concludes in a very, very harsh manner. And he said, unless you forgive, you're not going to be forgiven. Uh, we don't have time this morning, and probably with a different occasion, your pastor is going to uh, do a Bible study if he hasn't done so already on the importance of forgiveness. When you look in the Lord's Prayer, when you look all throughout the Scripture, unless you forgive, you're not worthy of forgiveness. This is the message that we teach our students at Emmanuel University. You know, as a school being situated in a formerly communistic nation, we have a lot of forgiveness to do. We have a lot of forgiveness to do. There were people who during communism were on the payroll of the secret service police. And there were church members. Some of them were pastors. And they did not necessarily repent. And now it is up to us as a generation to forgive them. We had a lot of tension with the Soviet Union, with the Russians, and it is time for us as a nation, for Romanians, to learn how to forgive. I don't know how many of you realize this, but Romania has a very interesting statistic. It's the country number three in the world with the highest number of Jews being killed during World War II. It was Germany, Poland, and Romania. We have a lot of repentance to do. We have a lot of forgiveness that we have to ask of. This is the message that we teach our students. We teach our students that there is freedom in forgiveness. There is freedom in repentance. There is freedom in the book. That the Holy Scriptures are the ones that are giving us all that we need for our lives. Thank you so very much for being part of our ministry. Thank you so very much to your pastor and all of you who have participated and what's going on, and what God is doing in Romania. My prayer for each and every one of us is that we're truly going to stay repented, and we're going to repent as often as we need to. And more specifically, is that we're going to learn to forgive. We're only going to learn to forgive, not necessarily because people ask for forgiveness, not because they deserve forgiveness, but because this is the command that our Lord and Savior gives us, and this is a fruit of the Spirit. May God bless you. Amen. Let's bow our heads and pray. Father, we stand before you this morning, and we are just like that slave that owed you so much. When we look at our own lives, when we look at our sinfulness, when we look at the uh, wretch that we were and the mud of sin that we were in, uh, Lord God, we don't want to remember those days. We don't want to remember the evilness in our hearts, the evilness of our minds and our thoughts. But I want to thank you so much for forgiving us. I want to thank you so much for uh, Lord Jesus' sacrifice that came uh, so we can have free entrance into the Father's throne. Thank you so much for that. And I pray this morning that you give each and every one of us a spirit of repentance. And you give each and every one of us uh, a spirit of forgiveness. May we forgive those around us. Uh, May they be very close in our family, our husbands, wives, children, uh, nephew, cousins, or those who are not so close, members in our church, um, former members of our church. Lord God, I ask that you give us a spirit of forgiveness. And I thank you for everything in Jesus' name. Amen.